Hey guys, so today, continuing from where we left off in the last episode, should Sacramento create a fund for youth sources voice aside on Measure L? However, those against Measure L say they don't think it's something that needs its own protected fund, calling the measure ballot box budgeting. They call the proposed Sacramento Children's Fund a lockbox, where it would take away flexibility for spending those dollars on other priorities, like public safety, homelessness, and climate change. Those in favor of Measure L say more investment is needed in Sacramento's undeserved youth, and that creating a protected fund whose dollars could only be spent on youth services would help guarantee that investment. They point out Measure L is not a tax increase, rather it is a requirement of past that a certain amount of the city budget be spent on youth services each every year. In fact, the bulk of the money in the Sacramento Children's Fund would come from cannabis tax revenue. Measure L would require at least 40% projected cannabis business operations tax revenue for the next fiscal year going to the fund. In a statement opposing Measure L, Sacramento City Council Member Jeff Harris and former Sacramento Mayor Heather Fargo wrote, It's deja vu all over again. This measure has failed twice as Measure Y and Measure G. It's failed for good reason. Ballot box budgeting is fiscally irresponsible, and this measure is an attempt to fund nonprofit organizations with tax dollars collected to provide essential city services. Spending on youth is important, and we already do a lot of it, adding they worry creating a lockbox for youth funding could lead to cuts or no. Further enhancements in other areas also important to taxpayers like homelessness, climate change, public safety, and clean mobility. Those in favor of Measure L say it would expand programs supporting our most vulnerable kids, the homeless, foster children, and low-income students without increasing taxes. Yes, L does not raise taxes. It simply allocates a portion of the city's existing budget to support services for homeless kids, foster children, and youth who need help. Increasing government accountability by requiring a greater guaranteed investment in Sacramento's most vulnerable population. Sacramento City Council Member Mai Vang co-authored the statement in favor of Measure L, along with American Academy of Pediatrics California Chapter 1 board member Dr. Lena Van Der List. Sacramento City Unified Schools elementary teacher and a 2023 Sacramento County Teacher of the Year, Dr. Debbie Lawson-Perez. Sacramento Area Firefighters Local 552 President Trevor Jameson and Sacramento Youth Alliance Director of Youth Programs Anna Takolo. You read the statement in favor of Measure L here and proponents respond to those against it here. Others in favor of Measure L include Mayor Dale Steinberg and youth mental health therapist Bryn Langdale. Read the statement in opposition to Measure L here and opponents response to those in favor here. Others opposed to Measure L include former Sacramento Mayor Jimmy Yee and for- former director of Sacramento Libraries Rivaka Sass. Another question. What kind of impact does youth funding have? ABC 10 has been following several youth organizations over the course of the past year. Irrespective of Measure L, we wanted to pull back the curtain and show how these youth organizations are making an impact in young people's lives. Peristai leads Impact Sacramento, a local nonprofit that supports and empowers youth. We are packing up bags for our home visits today so we can go visit some of our Sacramento teens, drop stuff off for them. She said earlier this year when preparing for prize patrol at Impact Sac, which is housed in office space donated by Guide Real Estate in Sacramento's Ice Blocks District. Coffee mugs for Check Your Vibe, which is our rental resilience campaign to get a sleep mask. Price patrols started during the pandemic. Young people couldn't get together in person, so Impact Sac hosted virtual group events and then made individual visits, giving prizes while doing mental health check-ins. On this particular day, the team stopped to give gifts to Teen Jade Daily. made me very happy that they came and see me and did all this for me, she told ABC10. PAXAC Program Director Veronica Bola said Sac offers services like mentoring and tutoring with the goal of helping students succeed and stay safe. A grant from the City of Sacramento's Office of Violence Prevention helped make that possible. We were granted $250,000 to do this work and to reach youth in the City of Sacramento, especially those who are gang involved and who need more support than others. Bola said back in March, Sac. Brought teens from all over the city to Golden One Center where they got a good view of the Kings game. We'll buy a group photo on the court. It, it's important because it lets kids know that they're valuable, you know, and that we deserve these seats too, and that they're obtainable. That I said young people can sit in good seats. It's not about just getting in the Kings game, it's about experiencing it and having a memory. The next day, and across town, two different youth organizations teamed up to host the March Madness Youth Basketball Tournament at Dr. Ibrahim Williams Family Life Center in Oak Park. What we wanted to do was just gather youth from different neighborhoods and provide them with an opportunity to just come and have clean fun in an outlet where they can be supervised, they can be fed, and just enjoy themselves, said Shatia Gomez. She's with the Greater Sacramento Urban League. 
or the community organizations that partner with the Black Child Legacy Campaign. Kenneth Duncan is founder and CEO of Ball Out Academy, which offers mentoring and free basketball programs to young people in the Sacramento area. We want to provide safe space for kids a few times a week to keep them off the streets, help them with their academics, Duncan said, but really it's about mentorship because I know how important they that is. Say your father is not in your life or your father is working a full-time job. It takes all those different coaches and mentors to help build up our youth to be successful. High schoolers Irving Cook said mentorship is important to young people so that so they know there's somebody out there that cares for them, that wants them to be on the right path. In 2018 and 2019, Sacramento saw zero youth homicides. That was the case in the following. That wasn't the case in the following three years. Youth leaders say to get back to zero requires the kind of in-person engagement they couldn't do for much of the pandemic. This is very important to us, lowering the homicide rate and trying to shut down gang violence. In Sacramento, Duncan said, we are hopeful and we know with the support that we are willing and ready to offer, not only mentoring, but even employment, right? Placing them in spaces that are productive where they're learning trades. And so then the gang involvement automatically decreases. Gwen said, we excited to start offering new things and really plug them into the things that we were are already offering what the pandemic made difficult to access. Her message to decision makers, keep investing in youth. Pay attention to the work that is being done. Pay attention to the outcomes that are coming. Invest in those organizations that are doing the work so that they can continue it, Gomes said. I think that considerable change doesn't happen immediately, and so we need to consistently be available for these families over time. With limited funding or even sporadic funding, that's not really possible. Chet Hewitt leads the Sierra Health Foundation and the Center at Sierra Health Foundation, which manages the Black Child Legacy Campaign. He says supporting youth services benefits everybody. A great city takes care of its children. I don't see these as expenses. These are investments in our future, Hewitt said. We want to we provide these opportunities to young people because we know that long term, not only do they benefit themselves and their families, they do benefit our region as well, economically, socially, and civically. So it's more than sports. It's more than games. It really is around young people in development. So today I'd like to talk about something um, more specifically, Greece unveils museum meant for stone sculptures. A new hypermodern museum at the foot of the Acropolis in Athens has a defiant purpose to convince Britain to give back the symbols of ancient Greek glory. The 2,500 year old sculptures of the Parthenon that were pried off the temple by Lord Elgin two centuries ago. So this is mainly about the um, I believe Elgin marbles something which even Britain very recently is considering um, to give back, but it brings up more issues. For decades, the main argument against the return of the sculptures, known as the Elgin or Parthenon marbles, was Greeks' lack of a suitable location for their display. The new Acropolis Museum is a stunning rebuttal. Um, assuming they meet one criteria, new criteria comes up. I think the more recent one is having to give back other artifacts from the days of um, the British Empire and their colonies. Designed by Swiss-American architect Bernard Schumi, the five-story building has an area of 226,000 square feet. Its glass-covered exterior walls reflect the images of the Parthenon and surrounding ruins. It's a really nice and large museum showing a lot of uh, Greek culture. The museum is the new home for hundreds of statues from the archaic and classical eras. Randomly distributed on the floor of a large gallery, the statues appear as if they are part of a crowd milling in the public square, giving visitors one-on-one close-up contact with the marble ancients. So, yeah, a lot of Greek um, culture can be viewed here. The top floor of the Parthenon Galley is a museum's showcase, says archaeologist Naya Carmelia, a member of the museum's exhibition team. So, um, you know, it's a lot of archaic and classical Greek stuff, but um, really even a floor dedicated to Parthenon. This is really important. This is the crown of the building, a glass box and glass surfaces, because the major requirement was the visual link to the Acropolis. You can see the monument and that. The same time as sculptures from the monument, Carmela says. Uh, I mean, yeah, Parthenon is really one of the most famous things when thinking about um, classical Greece. Everyone understands what is missing. The display space is the same dimension and orientation as the Parthenon looming on the Acropolis Hill, just 900 feet away. Thanks to wraparound glass windows, the exhibits bask in the same natural light surrounding the original temple, which was built for the goddess Athena, the protector of the city of Athens below. So... Yeah, I mean, that's really nice using the same um, sunlight or colors or natural materials. It does add to the classical experience. 
Britain's Lord Elgin chiseled off roughly half the sculptures that adorned the Parthenon in the early 1800s when Greece was an unwilling member of the Ottoman Empire. Later, he sold them to the British Museum. So the British Museum did pay for it. So that might be an issue in returning it. But Lord Elgin just took them. At the new museum, plaster casts of the sculptures housed in London are interspersed with original pieces Elgin left behind. Uh, yeah, so showcase try to showcase it all, but maybe some of the originals aren't there. Carmilla says the contrast between the stark white plaster and the ancient honey st colored stone has a specific purpose. And yeah, I mean, it's not the original thing. It's trying to give people um, a symbol or something to recognize from the original thing while well, the original thing is missing. Everyone understands at once what is missing because if you say numbers, you can't understand, but you can see how many are missing, she says. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's more of a visual thing than just exact numbers, which are missing. Standing for 525 feet, the sculpture of the temple's frieze depict the festival honoring Athena, a procession of worshippers performing rituals and musical and athletic contests. So yeah, just showing a lot of um, happened in um, classical Greece. That's really what museum is trying to showcase. Other parts of the temple's exterior, the metopes and pediments depict legendary vows and mythical scenes, something which is very common um, on classical um, and archaic Greek architecture. While pressure on the British Museum has increased, the spokeswoman Hannah Bolton firmly rejects repatriating the chiseled marbles to Greece. Um, yeah, they probably want to keep it. I mean, they did pay for them. They are now museum objects. They are objects of world art, and as such, there is no problem in terms of them being divided between two different museums and telling two different but completely complementary stories. She says, um, yeah, maybe they get some loan agreement where they could both share um pieces. Issue of national and cultural pride, nevertheless, Acropolis Museum Director Dimitros Pandermalis says his aim is to unify the entire composition close to its original setting. Uh, yeah, the Greece wants to hold back to, you know, have a similar area to the Parthenon, but a full exposure of what's going on, what's up, and you know, what can be seen. We have from the same figure, half the body in Athens, half the body in London. We have a body in London and a head in Athens. We have horses in London. The tails of the horses are in Athens. It is a moral problem in art of five monuments, he says. Yeah, I mean, you can get the whole, it would be probably best if it was in one location. So the whole um, art piece could be seen, uh, not just pieces of it. British Museum officials concede that it could loan some of the sculptures as long as Greece recognizes its ownership of the artifacts. It's a proposal Hinder Malice rejects. Yeah, they don't want to loan it because they want to own it outright. They don't belong to the British. They belong. They, they don't belong to us. They belong to history. They're not pieces of trade, he says. Um, so, yeah, just trying to showcase where it was naturally or where it was originally from. The campaign for the camp, the campaign for the return of the sculptures is part of the international debate over ownership of cultural property. Yeah, I mean, and that's more of the recent debates is over. Would um, the British Museum have to return other cultural pieces? For Greeks, the return of the Parthenon marbles is an issue of national and cultural pride. Uh, yeah, probably wanting original architecture from the country. Mauro Karkidi Ferrari, professor in the philosophy department of Athens University, says the Parthenon and what it symbolizes were traumatized by the sculpture's removal. I mean, really, it did take away from the initial um, building after it was rebuilt, of course. Um, they are the material proof of what democracy has built in Athens of the classical period, she says. They identify with the glory of ancient Greece and they are part of the national identity. And I mean, not having them on the Parthenon or near it um, could, it does take away from maybe an original feeling and look to the city. So today I'd like to talk about Britain requests the golden stool from the Shanti people. Um, and this was written for on the state in 1900. Britain asked Ghana for the golden stool. This was an attempt to get colonial control by possessing the Ark of the Covenant of the Ashanti people. With the close of the slave trade, the Ashanti found themselves at a disadvantage with no other form of export. Slave trading also caused neglect of basic demands such as agriculture and cloth manufacturing. Severely weakened, they soon found themselves the targets of their former European allies. Ironically, with reconstruction occurring in America, the British were trying to take possession of the Gold Coast, now known as Ghana. The proud warrior people known as the Ashanti inhabited this region. The British began their move by ex exiling Ashanti King Rempf in 1896. When this did not break the people's spirit, they demanded the supreme symbol of the Ashanti people, 
the golden stool. On March 28, 1900, the British governor called a meeting of all the kings in and around the Shanti city of Kumasi, ordering them to surrender the golden stool. Deeply insulted, the Ashanti silently left the meeting and went home to prepare for war. Nana, the queen mother, Ya Asantewa, became the inspiring force behind the Ashanti. This began with an unforgettably stinging speech. She said, it is true that the bravery of the Ashanti is no more. If you men of Ashanti will not go forward, then we will. We the women will. I shall call upon my fellow women. We will fight the white men. We will fight till the last of us falls in the battlefields. The speech so moved the chiefs that they once swore the great oath of Ashanti to fight the British until the Asante King Primp was set free from exile. Ya Asantewa began by having her troops cut telegraph wires and blocking routes to and from Kumasi, where the British had a fort. For several months, the Queen Mother led the Ashanti in combat, keeping the British pinned down. After sending 1,400 soldiers to put down the rebellion, the British captured Ya Asantewa and other Ashanti leaders or were exiled. Ya Asantewa died in 1923 far from her homeland. Her bravery and name are still remembered by those who referred to one of the last great battles for Ashanti independence in the last war fought in Black Africa led by a woman. So today I'd like to talk about food for the gods or you are who you eat in ancient Mexico. Forget grubs, sheep size, and moss, the ultimate in exotic culinary experience must surely be the eating of human flesh. Pork most closely resembles it in taste and texture, said the Aztecs of Central Mexico, who before the arrival of the Spanish in 1519 were enthusiastic practitioners of cannibalism, and who in the 1520s received domesticated pigs from the Spanish invaders. Similarities probably reflect the diet of swine, which, like people, are omnivores and lack the delicate flavor of grain hedge and flower-fed animals are the great gamey bouquet of carnivores. Both species exercise just enough to keep some muscle tone, but not so much as to be all gristle. So, I guess their top experience is eating humans. While there is no doubt that the Aztecs were cannibals, they readily admitted it to the Spanish or, well, there's no doubt that the Aztecs are cannibals, they readily admitted it to Spanish chroniclers. They had strict rules about when human flesh could be eaten, who could be consumed, and who were to be the guests at the banquets that occurred in the annual cycle of agricultural rituals. They did not practice a culinary free-for-all in which anyone could unexpectedly end up as the peace de resistance, nor did they gluttonously inhale every single morsel of the body. Said consumption of another person was intimately tied to ideas of transforming human flesh into high a highly potent substance that conveyed life force and that could be eaten only by other people who were already halfway to being gods themselves. So I guess this is more of like the god thing of like the human sacrifice, I guess. Banqueting occasions and decades before the Spanish arrived, the Aztecs had integrated the consumption of human flesh into a complex set of rituals tied to the 365-day agricultural year. Though costume, they trans or through costume, they transformed their victims into beings that personified food and useful plants, the earth in the cycle from sowing to harvest or gaming animals. In one right, for example, two Aztecs carried a sacrificial victim with arms and legs tied over a long pole, as if he were a deer. Later in that ceremony, noble participants ate small pieces of the man's body. Occasionally, priests dressed the victims as enemies from the Aztec past and ritually feed them again. Usually, the Aztecs treated their victims as honored guests and adorned them in the raiment of the gods, which brings us to the question of who could be so dressed, altered to a spirit, and then eaten. So yeah, I guess this was more of like a ritualistic thing. Who is the entree? The Aztecs really ate and sacrificed one another. For a few rituals, they chose victims from their own number, but these required special signs of supernatural selection, and such individuals were difficult to find. For example, they sacrificed children in the springtime during times of drought, but only if those youngsters had two cowlicks. Instead, the intended victim was usually a captive for slave taken in battle or purchased for the occasion. In the former instance, a brave warrior subdued a prisoner and returned with him to the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan, where he sometimes fed and housed his captive until the time of sacrifice. The purchase of an appropriate human offering required a sizable outlay of resources that ordinary farmers, fishermen, or small merchants could not hope to amass. So, yeah, this is very much a ritualistic thing. 
Men of noble status with access to land and wealth sometimes sponsored a human sacrifice for the benefit of the entire city, or an unfortunate victim might be acquired by a wealthy merchant, one of the Tenoch clan traveling traders who were in the process of becoming highly influential in Aztec economic, social, and political life when the Spanish arrived. Other native peoples in Mexico feared and suspected the Pochteca because they also served as spies for the expansionist Aztec empire, the Pochteca. Often disguised themselves to trade and spy, lest their enemies seize and kill them. Old merchants warn the young not to leave captured comrades behind to fill in enemies' cooking pot. Merchants often had to fight their way out of hostile villages, and many never returned home. Whether captured or purchased, the sacrificial victims were people from outside Aztec society. Often they did not speak the language or know the customs, and they had no kin to speak up for their lives. That's crazy, buying and selling like food like humans is food wow totally the life force Aztecs considered the human body to be equivalent to corn modern speakers of Nahuatl, the language of the Aztecs still assert that maize is their blood or their philosophically um, no modern speakers of Nahuatl, the language of the Aztecs still assert that maize is their blood or they philosophically note that they eat the earth and its products and then the earth eats them there is, is no fanciful idea it is based on the observation that corn was and remains the adult dietary staple. The pre-Columbian peoples ground it into meal to drink as a tole and often flavored it with fruit or honey. They ate cornmeal as tamales and probably as tortillas. They added honey, seeds, and juices and formed it into small figurines, cakes, as shapes, miniature objects, and human body parts. They consumed it at least once a day. Of what other substance could the human body be made except edible maize? Human body parts in their daily food. Wow. To eat a man or woman was to take flesh composed of corn, which in turn captured and contained the radiant heat of the sun. Any source of heat, the Aztecs detected a basic life force in the universe called tonali. The hearth fire flaming lava flows, a thick blanket or cloak sunlight and living bodies generated. The Aztecs said that a pair of aged gods who lived in the heavens took a fire drill and twirled the upright stick in the chest of an unborn child. Thus was the vital heat ignited. Conversely, the dead were cold to the touch and lacked any life force. The beginning of all things, the gods gave their own life force to the sun so that eating a human being was tantamount to consuming the tonality of the gods which sustained the sun that gave heat to the corn. Not just human sacrifice, but you have to eat the humans to continue society. Things or processes we classify as inanimate also contain tonality. According to the Aztecs, the life force was especially present objects that could renew themselves. Hair, fingernails, the first teeth, the children that were shed and replaced, and feathers used to decorate shields, headdresses, and capes. Shaping presses, gemstones also produced friction and heat. Lapidaries drilled holes in the center of jade, crystal, and turquoise ornaments to suspend them, warming the stones and giving them tonality. Hereditary military and financial elites placed their costumes in accordments. Jewelry... Feathers, shields, and headdresses, and cloaks and tunics in the sun to recharge the life force. It's just getting a life human to get more life. Wow. Two final points about the tonality. In addition to heat, it was also reflected in status, and it was it conferred social identity. The more capable person in any field, the greater his or her tonality. Noble warriors possessed more life force than common foot soldiers, and expert craftsmen more than indifferent workers or apprentices. Some people had greater tonality by dint of birth. Nobles naturally had more vital power than commoners, and the Aztec ruler emperor was filled with more than nobles. The amount of internal tonality the Aztecs believes was properly expressed in external appearance. The wealthier, the more powerful, the stronger, the more capable the person, the finer were his clothes and jewelry. No common laborer could hope to wear an elegant quetzal feather. Even if he found one in the road, his tonality was not sufficiently strong to match such an ornament. Yeah, like... I'm restricting people from getting certain things based on social class there. The logic of human sacrifice and cannibalism rests on the exchange of tonality. For sacrifice, the Aztecs transformed a mere human being, the possessor of a modest amount of life force, to a more powerful image, usually of a deity by dressing the captive in jewels, feathers, and costumes during the ritual. The, the insignificant individual assumed the appearance of a god. With the, the deity's vital force, the difference between human and divine being was in large part a difference in the amount of tonality that each contains. So basically, this person's almost going to be God has to eat someone who's just as a god. It's crazy. Pre-Columbian codices. The typical pre-Columbian manuscript was not truly a codex. That is a work bound on one side, as are, are modern books and magazines. Instead, an ancient Mexican book usually began as a long strip of animal, often deer hype. 
pounded into a thin sheet cut and sewn to other sheets of the same width. After the artist rubbed the long strip with sizing to make it stiff and polished it to make it smooth, it resembled in weight and surface the parchment and filled them and made, or no. After the artist rubbed the long strip with sizing to make it stiff and polished it to make it smooth, it resembled in weight and surface the parchment and vellum, also made of animal hide, used by Western medieval manuscript painters. Then the artist measured his work and painted his narrative and pictures. Finally, he folded the long strip back and forth. Accordion cell to form separate pages. This format yielded a screenfold pictorial manuscript that is usually but erroneously called a codex. So, like a book, I guess, of a deer, um, deer hides. Some of the pre-Columbian codices originated in the Mixtec, an area that is now predominantly in the state of Oaxaca, Mexico. Mixtec manuscripts were primarily concerned with genealogies and deeds of local rulers, while Codex Vindobonesis Mexicanus I or one, presents the foundation of these ruling lineages in the ancient first times. They reflect their language, culture, and rituals of the elite Mixtec people. Other pre-Columbian books, including Codex Loud, present calendrical and divinatory information and chronicle journeys of the spirits to the underworld and various secret sites. The provenance of these works is still under debate, but they have affinities to both Mixtec and Central Mexican Aztec themes and deities. So, stories of powerful individuals. The Maya people developed the form of a written glyphic script, but the Mexican screenful manuscripts convey their stories entirely in pictures. Neither the Mixtec nor the Aztecs invented script, and any words that appear in the non-Maya codexes were added by Europeans. Apparently, the manuscript served as devices to remind the reader of the correct sequence of information, so no Mayan words in codexes. Guests at the banquet. The emperor nobles and high-ranking soldiers were the most consistent consumers at cannibalistic rites. Occasional guests included warriors or merchants, especially the men who provided the human sacrifice in their families. In public, the emperor dressed splendidly in intricately woven clothing, magnificent jewelry in precious stones and gold, and iridescent quetzal feathers as evidence of his strong tonality. Nobles, the Aztecs believed, had tonality different from that of ordinary men and women. They, too, were granted special rich clothing, as were warriors who had proven the strength of vital powers through the bravery and survival of many battles. Those who had already possessed great tonality could expect to receive additional life force. Vital powers placed them between the average human being and the spirits, and like the gods, they were fortified with the tonality of others. So, yeah, I guess you have to eat someone to be able to get more power. After death, Asik said the character of an individual's tonality was clearly revealed. Uh, out of the body, the vital forces of common men and women became weasels, skunks, or other smelly animals with unsavory habits. Those nobles transformed into the mists and fogs that brought life-giving rains of the wet agricultural seasons. Nobles achieved the status of deities after death. They did, did not just become dead ancestors, but in essence revealed their natures as life-sustaining rain gods. Yep, nobles are gods, I guess. Setting. Um, the pre-Columbian ring god Teluk wears elaborate feathered and jeweled ornaments to express his life force or tonality and to establish his identity. The Aztecs dressed human beings in the costume of this deity to transform them into living images of the god confer his vital powers on them. After death, the souls of Aztec nobles became brain spirits in the form of clouds, mist, and fog. On one level, human flesh was part of a natural cycle. The sun gave warmth and the corn sealed its energy in juicy kernels. Then people ate maize and turned it into flesh in exchange the Aztecs common and noble often offered their blood, which they believed carried tonality to the gods to replace the life force that the deities originally gave to the sun, to replace the life force the sun show showered onto the earth. So, human flesh, something they need, more of this life force to the earth. Wow, that's crazy. Things they're doing. A costume, ritual, and feathered ornaments transformed a human being into the living image of a god by adding to his or her tonality. Nobles and sometimes valiant warriors and wealthy merchants consumed part of that tonally charged body because high status people were already tonally rich. Their their deaths, although their noble bodies might also be eaten by the earth, their tonality transformed into rain clouds and mists in the wet season. Their life forces thundered across the wide valley of Mexico, watering it and making the plants, especially the maize, bloom and grow. Yep, eating humans, I guess, makes crops grow. If a common man could not join a ritual meal of human flesh, he could hope that the tonality of the nobles' future rain spirits be fed 
and grow strong in the ritual consumption of flesh. The human body was no longer present, said the nearest or soon-to-be God ate the image of the God as the living nobles gained vital power that they would use after death for the benefit of everyone. Basically, you don't get to eat. Become the God or eat, eat the human, but you get some type of benefit. Today, I'd also like to discuss kids love to play video games, so do white supremacists. Video games have changed since I played Mario Kart on my friend's older brother's Nintendo. Now gamers, both kids and adults, were headsets and playing spawning online worlds populated by thousands of users from across the world. Yep, multiplayer and now video games. According to a new report from the Anti-Defamation League, those new worlds and battlefields are often populated by white supremacists and extremists. There are a lot of different groups that play online video games. Imagine you're a middle school kid playing Roblox, an online multiplayer game that allows users to create their own worlds and servers, and you stumble upon something called Camp Concentration. You go in and find yourself in a prison camp dominated by massive watchtowers and covered in German flags. Other users walk around clothed in Nazi uniforms, operating showers that release poison gas from a button labeled Execute. There are pyres. Um, this is something you can play, um, but it is... And you have to go out of your way to play it. It doesn't represent all of the Roblox experience. Or maybe you're playing a shooting or battle game. Before every bout, you're placed into a lobby with other random users who will be on your team. You're given a few moments to chat before the match begins. A propos of nothing, one user begins spouting anti-Semitic conspiracies. Another user hears someone's voice, realizes she's a girl, and immediately kicks her off the team. Um, I wonder what game that is. These scenarios are surprisingly common in the world of video games. While we often worry about hate speech and harassment on social media platforms such as Twitter or Facebook, it prolifer proliferates freely on online gaming platforms, which there are hundreds. Each game functions as its own platform, and unlike Twitter, which even under Elon Musk puts an emphasis on moderation, many online games have few systems in place to control the spread of extremist ideology and restrict users from bullying and harassing other players. And I agree with that. Some games do have that, but... The games that don't um, have a lot of enforcement on what's being said in them. Yet, these games are unbelievably popular. In 2020, Roblox told Bloomberg that two-thirds of children between the ages of 9 and 12 play the game. And that's just a single game. Yeah, Roblox for around that time age is very popular with children. More than five out of six Americans experience harassment in gaming, according to the new report, which was conducted with the help of gaming industry data analytics company Nuzo. Users reported harassment on the basis of race, religion, and gender, among other categories. Users come to know each other's race, religion, and gender through friendly conversation, and often via simply hearing the other user's voice through their headset. Now, that is something people do make a lot of assumptions, at least a voice that they probably shouldn't otherwise make. The survey reports that Jewish players of online multiplayer games experienced the largest increase in harassment from 2021, going from 22% to 34% of users experiencing harassment. Women of all backgrounds experienced the largest share of hate overall as a category. Yet, I just was wondering, how does... I don't think there are any games you can kick someone off your team or out of the game because they're a woman. I don't know. I wonder what game is being referenced there. What does the extremism look like? The harassment ranges from bullying and name-calling within a game to doxing when someone's real name and address are non-consensually shared, even swatting when a bad-faith user sends law enforcement to someone's house on a false report. Um, yeah, those are all true scenarios. Having weapons drawn on me when the police believe I have a hostage situation is very scary, wrote one Asian-American 24-year-old who got swatted. Um, yeah, it is. swatting is a very negative thing that happens. And then there's the white supremacist ideology. Sometimes users post hate in comments or spoken conversation, but some users go farther. In some battle games, users might build a swastika-shaped structure out of materials they can use to shelter from enemy attacks. In world-building games like Roblox is reported by Wired and a startling story linked in the report. Users even build entire worlds inspired by fascism where they force their fellow users to form armies that follow harsh, racially motivated codes of conduct. That's something where, in places like Roblox, you can build pretty much anything. Um, that's something that will get by. For those who make friends on extremist servers or enjoy exchanging conspiracy theories while on a team, there's a path to further radicalization. Users will invite each other to private chats or channels on sites such as Discord, Telegram that are even more conspiratorial, violent, or racist where they are exposed to more extreme ideology. And I mean, 
it's like moderating a phone call. On the phone calls, people say a lot of things then, or that moderated. Encouraging hatred, the author of the report, Anti-Defamation Defamation League's Director of Strategy and Operations, Daniel Kelly, said that extremists often experiment with sharing their violent ideologies in video games because they rarely face condemnation. They can radicalize further. So with that, um, you know, if there's nothing facing you, I mean, a lot of people will say a lot of things if there are no negative consequences for it. Report from the New Zealand government about the Christchurch shooter who killed 51 and injured 40 in the shooting at two mosques in New Zealand alleged that he was able to openly express racist and far-right views in his community within online multiplayer games, which led in part to his further radicalization. Um, I don't know if that would directly contribute to it in all situations where they're shooting it's from a video game, but that is something... I believe there was some connection to that, so I'd have to recheck, but it's something that... I'm thinking what's connecting there. Because you can connect with strangers, the norms are super important, Kelly said of the gaming community. The norms right now are around trash talking and are around conflict and hostility and toxicity. And yeah, I mean, that's just really common in the gaming community. He attributes this toxic culture to the lack of moderation that plagues most games. When extremists can regularly sh share freely, they feel encouraged. It's not even, it's just everyone wants someone else to say something which you wouldn't say really much in person and it just continues on that way online there has been a culture of permissiveness by the platforms where they haven't been aggressive in content moderation which sets up norms in these places that people can let fly the most ugly parts of themselves there will be no consequences from the platform or their fellow gamers and kill yep i mean i think the main thing they're talking about here is maybe there's the roblox example they bring up a lot it's true in that game pretty much anything flies you can do anything except Bad words. I don't know what the the content moderation there. You know, it's not things that are meaning like all these um, uh, phrases targeted towards groups, but individual words that we do believe are censored there. K Kelly's research shows that people who are harassed on often leave gaming, which exacerbates the problems. You end up with a culture of people who are either hardened and see the experiences of harassment as part of the water they swim in, or people who are the worst of the worst and really embrace and revel in it he said i mean that's true um, i do know those there are some places where you can go where if you moderate yourself you can't get that better experience but that that, that true might that might be an issue or hatred found some games on their surface may some games on their surface seem more closely connected to hater extremism call of duty world war ii for example made the controversial choice to make a game with nazis always if it's a game about world war ii and you have some nazis there I don't know how controversial it is to have something historically accurate in the game. But, but hatred can manifest in all games. Games with edgy storylines don't necessarily lead to more hate speech. And seemingly innocuous games often shelter extremists too. Like I have been saying, a lot of times online, when there's a lot of unmoderated voice channels, really is going towards that worst of the speech. When you look across our statistics of harassment and white supremacy, it's present across every genre of game, whether it's a shooter, that has problematic media elements, whether it's a sandbox like Roblox or Minecraft, whether it's a sports game like Madden, said Kelly. It's a problem with, I think, the culture of online games. I wouldn't necessarily attribute it to the content, and I agree with that. It's just online. It's a shared, and it's really not content. If you have something historically accurate versus, you know, something you have to create this controversy, you're going to have it there, that um, speech. The problem with moderation, every social media platform struggles with moderation, but video games do a worse than average job. Kelly said this Kelly said that this is because it's unclear who ex exactly should be in charge. We have no moderation, no rules. It's kind of like free-for-all. Each game is a giant community that is in ways like a social media platform. Players can interact with strangers, chat, and explore, except games are played through different consoles such as Xbox or PlayStation as well as on PCs. Um, and Kelly said the different console companies as well as the game company itself are involved in attempting to moderate, but some, especially the game company itself, are unprepared for the challenge. I don't know if it's like a social media because you're doing something specific, but yeah, a lot of freedom of use. These spaces were never designed with the idea of like we're creating a social environment for multiple clients. It was not initially created with this idea with the sort of social aspects of it, Kelly said. So, I mean, I kind of agree that it's not 
made to seem like a social media. Um, it's more, it's gone this way, but it's more of when you allow freedom of expression in any form, it's going to go multiple ways and not just the way it was intended to go. So instead, he compared games to something like a movie. After it's created and shipped out into the world, its creators take their hands off of it. The social aspect arose over time. Game developers still conceived of their products as something that once finished or shipped out did not need continued involvement from the designers leading to a moderation. I believe, though, if there are, like, updates and such, you know, maybe there should be moderation. But it's the main part of the game. Like, if it's a one-time you're buying it to use it, where will those funds, if they're not providing all the player base or most of the player base is not providing funds to update the game, where would this moderation come from? You know, who would pay for this moderation? It really is just... Um, being released and you're buying it the way it comes out. Gamers often move conversations to other platforms such as Discord or Twitch, both of which spring out of the gaming community to provide further platforms for chatting and streaming. And that's not really something these video game companies and developers can handle. You have the lack of moderation from the game platform then leads into Twitch and becomes the responsibility to Kelly. I do believe though Twitch has a very strong moderation. Even tracking even tracking and researching hate speech on gaming platforms is difficult given that most games are impossible to search. Ability to know how and whether these are happening in different platforms is really limited. He explained, there's no platform that really, that's really providing public access to data. Um, yeah, it's hard to do on platforms. It's really by game. A lot of games, you know, you don't know who's playing on what platform. Maybe the developers will know if it's using, um, has a server information, but it's really hard to know publicly. Kelly said, Many people don't realize games are the site of so much extremism. There's a disconnect between the dangers of social media and the dangers that are present in the ways in which online games are very much online platforms, not closed. And I mean, that's anywhere that has a voice chat. I mean, really any application, your phone, I mean, could be an online platform. Kelly said he hoped, especially if you get multiple people on there. I mean, it's really on a platform between you and the person you're calling. Kelly said he hoped the report would raise awareness about the extremism breeding in online gaming so much attention is paid to hate speech on social media online games might even be more dangerous um yeah i mean it's really just the community of people you attract uh, to these situations kelly knows parents who forbid their children from having social media accounts yet allow them to play online multiplayer games roblox after all is geared at young children and rated for ages seven and up i mean that could be because social media are looking to you know, pick people out of a crowd and do certain things, and it really lends itself towards maybe that hatred, while in the game it is sometimes just playing the game that's been created. And Roblox is one of the only places I can think of where an elementary school kid could accidentally walk into a kinky bonded scene or a functioning concentration camp. I mean, when you have a free-for-all world, really, like the ideas you, that you can type out or say, and the scenes you can create, I mean, you're really going to come into those issues. Hello everyone, today I want to talk about Nigeria election Muhammadu Buhari wins presidency. Former military ruler Muhammadu Buhari has become the first opposition candidate to win a presidential election in Nigeria. General Buhari beat incumbent Goodluck Jonathan by more than 2.5 million votes. Final results showed. Mr. Jonathan telephoned his rival to concede defeat. General Buhari's supporters took the streets to celebrate. Observers have generally praised the election, though there have been alleged Observers have generally praised the election, though there have been allegations of fraud. I promised the country free and fair elections, and I or I have kept my word, Mr. Jonathan said in a statement. He said he had conveyed his best wishes to Mr. Buhari and urged those who may feel grieved to follow due process in seeking redress. Celebrations, a spokesman for General Buhari's All Progressives Congress, APC party, praised Mr. Jonathan, saying, You will remain a hero for this move. The tension will go down dramatically. General Buhari's supporters have celebrated by dancing and singing in the streets in All Progressives Congress strongholds, including the northern cities of Kano and Kaduna. Nigeria's Electoral Commission officially declared the 72-year-old general the winner of the presidential election early on Wednesday morning. The All Progressives Congress won 50,424,921 votes. Mr. Jonathan's People's Democratic Party, PDP, gained 12,853,162 votes. General Buhari's victory is a hugely significant moment in Nigeria's turbulent history. Never before has the sitting president been defeated in an election. Since independence from Britain in 1960, there have been numerous coups 
and most elections have been rigged. Of course, in the close election, there will be many voters who are not pleased with this outcome, but the whole process is a sign that democracy is deepening in Nigeria. The poll has once again brought to the surface dangerous religious and regional differences. There is still a threat of violence. The man who has been voted out, good luck Jonathan, has played a huge part in today in trying to prevent that. He made the phone call when there would he made the phone call when there would no doubt have been some in his camp who would have preferred to dig their heels in. The All Progressive Congress issued a statement after the result was announced calling for calm, sober celebrations and warning supporters not to attack opponents. He or she is not with me. Whoever does that, the president-elect said. He is due to give a speech later on Wednesday. The former military ruler dominated the country's northwestern states, which have suffered most from attacks by Islamist militant group Boko Haram. In Borneo State, one of the most... Or in Borneo State, one of the worst affected by Islamic violence, General Buhari won 94% of the vote. It is the fourth time that General Buhari 72 has sought the presidency. He ruled Nigeria from January 1984 until August 1985. Before, or he ruled Nigeria from Jan January 1984 until August 1985, taking charge after a military coup in December 1983. Mr. Jonathan had led Nigeria since 2010 initially as acting leader before winning elections in 2011. Nigeria has suffered from several attacks by the Islamist militant group Boko Haram, which has killed thousands of people in its drive to establish an Islamic state. Many voters have said that they believe General Buhari is a better position than to defeat Boko Haram. The verdict on Mr. Buhari's 20 months as military ruler is mixed. The European Union's top diplomat, Federica Bokherini, Congratulated General Buhari on his victory, saying she looked forward to working with him. Today, I want to talk about Nigeria's ruling party wins most seats in parliamentary election. Nigeria's ruling party won the most seats in both of the country's legislative chambers in last month's elections, bolstering President-elect Bola Tinubu's ability to implement his policy agenda. So, Bola Tinubu, the new president of Nigeria. The All Progressives Congress secured 57 out of the 109 constituencies in the Senate and 162 out of the 360 in the House of Representatives. Mahmoud Yakubu, chairman of the Independent National Election Commission, said March 4th, results for 11 seats in the upper chamber and 35 in the lower chamber have yet to be declared, he said. So um, some results have not been um, revealed yet. The scores so far mean. The All Progressives Congress is assured a majority in the Senate, but not yet guaranteed one in the House, where Patrick of opposition parties currently have one more seat. Tanubu, who received the lowest vote share of any president-elect in Nigerian history, will need buy-in from the legislature to push through some of the politically sensitive reforms he's promised, including removing a costly fuel subsidy. So, um, yeah, the All Progressives Congress might not have a... Um, majority in the Nigerian House of Representatives. The next parliament will be the most diverse National Assembly since the restoration of democracy in 1999. Seven parties present in the Senate and eight in the House, according to Yakubu. So yeah, a lot of different parties in Nigeria right now. As it stands, the People's Democratic Party, whose nominee Atuku Abubakar finished second in the presidential race, will remain the main opposition group, securing 29 seats in the Senate and 102 in the House. The Labor Party, whose Peter Obi finished third, won six and 34 constituencies, respectively. So yeah, three main parties. Currently, on this Labor Party, got pretty large here in uh, Nigeria. Tanubu is scheduled to succeed President Muhammadu Buhari at the end of May, after a three-month transition period. The um, People's Democratic Party and Labor Party are contesting his victory in court. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of contesting about whether this Nigerian election result 100% was legitimate. So today I'd like to talk about can Nigeria's election result be overturned? Opposition parties in Nigeria's fiercely contested polls will attempt to do what has been described as the impossible, getting a court to overturn the outcome of a presidential election in Africa's most populous nation. So yes, there are court challenges to the most recent Nigerian presidential election. Peter Obrey and Atku Abubakar, the second and third place candidates in the tightest presidential election since the end of military rule in 1999, are heading to court to challenge the result that Sabola Tanubu, the ruling party, declared the winner with 37% of the vote. Um, yes, yeah, so they don't think Bola Tanubu is 
eligible to win based on, I believe, three factors. Well, Mr. Abubakar of the main opposition People's Democratic Party, PDP, called the result a rape of democracy after getting 29% of the vote. The Labor Party's Mr. Obi, who got 25%, told supporters they had been robbed of victory, failed to prove it to Nigerians. Yeah, and that's those main three reasons it would prove. But what evidence do they have, and what are their chances of overturning the result? Because, you know, if they have a chance of overturning the result, then it doesn't really matter if, um, you know, there were things that shouldn't have happened during the election. So when do the parties have to file? All petitions challenging an election in Nigeria must be filed within 21 days of the announcement of the results. They will not be considered, and I believe both parties have done so. So Peter Obi and Atku Abubakar will have to send their petitions to the appeals court tribunal in the capital, Abuja, before the 31st of March, which they did. While this encourages the speed commencement of a trial and may be straightforward in local elections, it might prove to be a daunting to collect evidence from the more than 176,000 polling units or more than 8,000 area collation centers results were first received in this. Um, no. While this encourages the speed commencement of a trial and may be straightforward in local elections, it might prove to be daunting to collect evidence from the more than 176,000 polling units or more than 8,000 area collation centers where results were first received in the presidential polls. Yeah, just a lot of things having to be captured if an election of this size was and is to be overturned. How long will it take to reach a verdict? A written result from the tribunal is expected 180 days after the suit is filed, and as a, and as Messrs. Obi and Abu Bakar are expected to file several related decisions will be given at different times. So it could be well after um, the president who Bulatunubu, um, who was declared to win, asserted his presidency. However, the decision of the tribunal is not final and the parties can decide to head to the Supreme Court for a conclusive verdict. That process takes 60 days, so a final decision should be made within eight months. Um... Yeah, so it's going to be a very long process. Will affect the inauguration? No. So Bolotinubu will be inaugurated um, when other, pres other presidents have usually been inaugurated. It's highly unlikely that the tribunal will reach a decision before the 29th of May when Mr. Tinubu is due to be sworn in as president. So, yeah, about eight months from that 31st of March date. Could be a very long time. Even if the tribunal ordered a rerun or declared any of his opponents the winner of the real, or even if the tribunal ordered a rerun or declared any of his opponents the winner of the election, such an outcome is most likely to be challenged at the Supreme Court, which could take two more months. What does the law say about the transmission of results? When pressed by journalists to disclose what evidence he has that he won the election, Mr. Obi refused to say. Well, Mr. Atku said. The processes and outcome of the election are flawed. Those are like the three main reasons they're going at. But going by the speech of the People's Democratic Party's representative at the center, where the results were announced before both parties walked away, it is likely that their respective cases will hinge on the electronic transmission of results from their polling units. You know, both parties are looking at this very closely. An act that was signed last year to guide the conduct of the 2023 elections stated that voting and transmission of results shall be in accordance with the procedure determined by the Independent National Election Commission. Nick, I mean, there were like 2022 election forms, a lot of election guidelines and such. The act mandated INEC to publish guidelines for the elections, clearly outlining the steps from recording the results, pulling unit to the last collation center at the word constituency, and this will be looked at pretty closely. INEC then publishes guidelines for the election where it stated that its officials will, there's two steps here, electronically transmit or transfer the result of the polling unit directly to the collation system, and the second step will be use the bimodal voter accreditation system, BVAS, to upload a scanned copy of the EC8A, which is a result sheet, to the INEC result viewing portal IREF. The new electronic system, BVAS, was intended to speed up the delivery of results and make it harder to interfere with votes. For many voters reported that INEC staff were either unable or unwilling to upload results to the website, raising fears that this could be a, a sign of a plot to rig the election. If poll workers won't do what they're asked to do, I mean, there could be something up there. 
Anik blamed the surge in traffic for its inability to publish the results in real time, but almost a week after the first bot was cast, 12% of the results have still not been published. You can't declare an election based on so many results outstanding. Senior Nigerian lawyer Yemi Kindidi Johnson told the BBC that INEC guidelines were not law and that an election can only be nullified for substantial non-compliance with electoral law. Um, that's going to be something hard to prove. While there may have been issues with the election, and you're going to have to prove it up to, it's going to have to be proved up to that standard. If non-compliance does not affect the result, it will not nullify the result. If certain results in certain areas are non-compliant, everyone is possible only if it will be materially said. It's only if this is really going to affect the election, there will be some reruns. What other evidence is there? Since Mr. Obi says that he won the election, he may demand that he be declared the winner. There were several complaints of malpractice in places such as Rivers, Delta, Emo, Sokoto, and Lagos, where opposition parties accused INEC staff colluding with the ruling party and security officials to manipulate the results of the Ward Coalition Center. So there might have been some election fraud there. Digital sleuths have been comparing results posted on the INEC website with hard copies they took at their polling centers and are claiming there are discrepancies. The Labor Party has created a digital platform for its young supporters to document such irregularities by posting results from their polling units so they can be compared with what was announced at the Ward Collation Center. And that's a good idea to check to make sure the election's being run properly. Some of the results on the INEC website have been posted in the wrong states, while others are badly defaced or obviously altered. Though some people have also confirmed that the results from their polling use match with those on the INEC website. Yeah, the whole system is a mess currently. Mr. Obi suspects that the results have been altered to reduce his votes in certain areas and increase those of the winner. He would have to present original copies of the result sheets and the electronic machines used to accredit voters from these contested places to back up his claims. So, has to have a lot of evidence to prove this. Mr. Obi also hinted there was a deliberate policy of making it hard to vote and manipulate. Mr. Obi also hinted that there was a deliberate policy of making it hard to vote and of manipulating the results, especially in some areas seen as his strongholds. Although 87 million people were eligible to vote in the election, just 27% of these cast their ballots. Well, since 1999, and there was a really low turnout at this election. INEC officials arrived hours after polls had closed in some southern states do not show up at all, and others, the sign that there could have been election fraud. However, to win a case in court, the opposition parties would have to prove this was deliberate and that it affected the outcome of the poll. Yeah, high burden. So, what do they have to prove? According to the Electoral Act, a petitioner has to prove that non compliance with provisions of law made a difference to the outcome of the elections. That high bar. Instances of manipulation or violence disrupting the poll would have to have happened in a majority of the polling units or collation centers. So, you know, has to prove that this wasn't just in some region, it had to be in a lot of regions. The difference between Mr. Tanubu and Mr. Abu Bakar is close to 2 million votes, while Mr. Obi is a further 700,000 votes behind. So, you know, you have to make up those 2 million votes. Though Nigeria's previous elections have often seen huge problems such as violence or suppression nor ballot box snatching on election day, no presidential candidate has been able to prove that such irregularities eventually affect the outcome. So there's a lot of voter fraud in Nigeria, but just nothing proof that changed the election. In 2003, when current President Muhammadu Buhari challenged the victory of Olashugan Obsanjo, a Supreme Court judge said a plaintiff needed a minimum of 250,000 witnesses to establish a case non-compliance in the conduct of a presidential election to win the case. We'll see if they can get that many. Law has since been changed to drop the need for this roll call of witnesses, it shows the enormity of the challenge for the petitioners. It was against this very high bar. However, this is the first national election conducted with the electronic transfer of results. While there were glitches with the system on election day, the results from the polling units are now gradually being uploaded to the INEC website. So that should make it easier for the petitioners to access evidence they need. Um, yeah. Pretty easy to... Prove this high bar, you have to prove it in a lot of places, and you have to prove a lot. Because opposition win their case, although no presidential result has ever been overturned, this has happened with several other elections in Nigeria. So, you know, elections have been overturned in Nigeria before, and Mr. Obi's one of the beneficiaries. He's proved it before, so he'll be able to prove it again. He had to wait three years before getting into office in 2006 after successfully proving that he won the governorship election of Anambra State in 2003 prove it there, possibly can prove it on the presidential stage. He was able to prove at the tribunal and the appeal court that he received the most votes in the, electoral, in the election 
was declared the winner. So we'll see if he can do this again here. So something I like to begin in this episode and carry much into the next episode is United States hailed Nigeria election results while election observers cried foul. As independent United States election observers raised alarm bells about widespread voting irregularities in Nigeria's February 25th presidential elections, the United States Department was singing an entirely different tune congratulating Bola Ahmed Tinubu as electoral victor and hailing a competitive election that represents a new period for Nigerian politics and democracy. So it looked like the United States, I think there were the voting irregularities in Nigeria were too big. <laughs> 